with Daily Kosa's The Brief, our weekly show about politics. Here, we'll discuss the issues that are driving the news as we fight for a more progressive America. I am Marcos Molitsis, the founder of Daily Kos, and your co-host, along with senior political writer Carrie Ellaveld. If you want to join the conversation, we record the podcast live on YouTube and Facebook every Tuesday at 1.30 Pacific, 4.30 Eastern. Enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this week's edition of Daily Coast The Brief. This is a weekly show about politics. I'm Marcos Melissas. I'm here with my co-host, Carrie Ellaville. Today, we're going to explore the personal, political, and legal implications of the GOP's latest attack on the LGBTQIA+, as my as my 14-year-old daughter would, would uh, say. Uh, the LGBTQ and uh, all that community and trans youth. The Republicans have really, really, really like leaned in heavily on this. And in particular, we're going to be talking with Vivian Topping. She is the Director of Advocacy and Civic Engagement at the Equality Federation. And Shannon Minter, he is the Legal Director of the National Center for Lesbian Rights. Carrie, I'm really excited about this show. We've been trying to put it together now for a, for a couple of weeks, and it finally came through, and I, you, you've got some great guests. I'm really excited to talk about something that Republicans are really really sort of banking on it's almost like their 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 number one effort to win 2022 but before we get into that conversation first of all let's let's talk about the the joe manchin show right i we all thought do do we have to talk about haven't haven't we all heard enough about joe manchin at this point (laughs) i mean god we all thought Joe Biden had been elected president. Little did we know that actually we had dictator Joe Manchin calling all the shots in Washington, D.C. And really, I mean, the last two weeks has really been all about Joe Manchin because nothing is going to happen on any piece of legislation at this point unless Joe Manchin gives the thumbs up. And so things are at a standstill. And Carrie, I'm starting to get like 2010 vibes. How are you feeling? I, I hate to agree with you, but like, <laughs> I mean, I, so, okay, let me make a distinction. Yes, to some extent. But but the caveat is, I don't think the White House is actually falling for it, right? I mean, you know, Biden now is is a little between a rock and a hard place. I don't think he really believes that the Republicans are going to come to the table with any sort of, you know, negotiate in good faith and, and give him, you know a big win or even close to anything that he really wants in terms of revolutionizing the nation's infrastructure, creating millions of jobs, et cetera. I I don't think he really believes that Republicans are, are on track to try to get that done for the American people, the way Joe Biden wants to get it done for the American people. And I think to some extent, the Obama white house was under the impression that there were good good faith negotiations going on. But now he's in a situation where he's been, you know, going negotiating with Republicans. He's been, you know, trying to get to a place where he's demonstrated that he's kind of gone down every avenue with Republicans with the hope, of course, that I, I, I mean, I honestly believe with the hope that if Democrat, I mean, if Republicans came up incredibly shy of his ambitions, which is exactly where they are, like totally yeah. not even close, not even close. Right. I mean, they, you know, they, they would rather have us for the next hundred years be relying on, you know, trains and bridges for our, you know, for 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 the 21st century. And it's just crazy. But anyway. So, you know, they're not even close. And I think he was hoping that once he got to the point that it was really clear that they weren't even close, that someone like Joe Manchin would come along. And, you know, what we're seeing from Joe Manchin is whether this is some sort of studied performative art that he, you know, must go through before, you know, coming coming to the table with Demo- with the Democrats only bill uh, or this is Joe Manchin basically dooming Joe Biden's agenda. We don't know, but but Biden is stuck dealing with it. And so I do think that there is a difference in approach by the Biden White House. But in terms of time ticking away, political capital starting to, you know, starting to wane a little bit, momentum starting to slow. Yeah, it has a 2010 vibe to it, um, although I would argue that the American Rescue Plan already makes Biden's administration on, 
you know, a, a pretty, ex- pretty successful administration, at least thus far. Um, and certainly with, you know, getting the pandemic under control so far. I mean, that is just far and away right. his biggest accomplishment. Yeah. So it's actually, and I will 100% uh, cop to that being a kind of an unfair comparison. Not only that, but when we saw, and when we talk about 2010, for those who, who might not know, the Republicans strung along Barack Obama for 14 months on the Affordable Care Act, the, the Obamacare. And this is at a time when Democrats had 59 seats in the Senate. And at, for a little bit of time, they had 60. For a little bit of time, they had 60. Have you ever and, just torn your hair out just a little bit? You just like grab a clump of it and go, so it's really not fair to say, okay, like three weeks have gone by. That's exactly like 14 months in 2010. I, I get it. But the thing is, I, I think as liberals and our, as activists, we're sort of scarred by those 14 months. And it doomed, it doomed Democrats in 2010 because nothing got done. And Obama made so many concessions that, that still didn't garner a single Republican vote, that it demoralized the Democratic base. Republicans were all fired up. This was the heyday of the Tea Party. And they were able to take the state legislatures that led to the voter disenfranchisement that led to re- that Donald Trump winning Wisconsin, Pennsylvania uh, and uh, Michigan and Florida and, and so on. And it created these districts, these gerrymandered districts at the state and federal level. But the state ones were really, really hazardous. They really screwed us at the state level. And we're about to talk about state level legislation targeting the trans community this is still this is like the the legacy of 2010 not in all states right because alabama and mississippi these weren't states that really mattered but there were so many of the state legislatures that are doing these things today are doing so because they have republican majorities that they got after 2010 so 2010 has this really outsized role in in our minds right so the right. second week i see anyway i see by today he opened up negotiations with bob corker bob corker of tennessee bob Corker's not going to agree to anything right i mean the very best case scenario he might get mitt romney he might get lisa murkowski he might get susan collins and that's it and in fact to overcome a filibuster the 10th republican most likely to vote with biden you know who that is did you see this Mitch McConnell. <laughs> Mitch yeah. McConnell. Who's, who's, who's already said, I guarantee you, my 100% of my focus is on dooming the Biden administration. You're like dooming their, their advancement. So, so, but here, Joe Manchin, I find imminently frustrating and incredibly perplexing, Kerry, because he represents a state that, brought, that uh, Donald Trump won by 40 points. Half of the Democrats in the state just flipped and became Republicans, including the, the current governor. And they don't suffer penalties for it in West Virginia. It's not a place that penalizes turncoats. Joe Manchin could easily switch parties. And he'd probably have a much easier path to reelection if he did so. But he doesn't. And he voted for Chuck Schumer. And we wouldn't have the American Rescue Plan without Joe Manchin. We wouldn't have a prayer of anything passing without Joe Manchin. So I don't understand why he's such a pain in the ass. And I don't understand why he stays a Democrat. And I don't know if you have any thoughts about this, because I think this is everybody's big mystery. I don't think anybody knows, right? Yeah, I mean, maybe Joe Manchin believes in two things in life, being a Democrat and the Senate filibuster. I mean, maybe that's it. I don't know. Like, I I, I, I struggle to want to – I've spent a lot of time parsing his words, you know, and trying to figure out what his mentality is and what motivates him and whatever. And, look, at this point, I feel like – and I wrote a not such – not such a great graceful piece yesterday that I actually would like to go and update because uh, or 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 add to in a in a new post. But I think that you know you've got to Democrats have to shift a little bit gears, right? I mean, he, look, the, he he wrote that op-ed, you know, in a in a uh, West Virginia newspaper. Um, saying he wouldn't support the For the People Act. Now he has he has supported 
uh, portions of the John Lewis Voting Rights Act. But he was a co-sponsor of the For the People Act just two years ago. He was, but he isn't now. Yeah, he isn't now. He's the only he's the sole Democratic holdout as a co-sponsor. Even even Kirsten Sinema of Arizona, Senator Kirsten Sinema of Arizona is on the For the People Act. He's he's the lone holdout. So, you know, I, I guess I look at things and I say Democrats have to they're going to first of all, Senate Democrats are going to go through a a month this month that will be a sort of reckoning of sorts, right, where they have, you know, almost a handful of votes on appointees and on several different maybe uh, gun reform, maybe LGBTQ equality bill, maybe uh, the, the, you know, pay equity act, things like that. That's happening right now, actually. But anyway, th- so so they're going to have votes on all these things. And what's going to happen is, r- without a doubt, Republicans are going to lay waste to every one of them. Right. On a party so line vote. On a party, on a party line, line vote. Yeah. Vote. It's not even going to so, be. Yeah. Well, I don't. I, yeah, I suppose so. I'm not convinced that Joe that Joe Manchin is going to vote for LGBTQ equality. I mean, oh. I just knowing his right. history. I, I yeah. mean, universal Republican opposition. Yes, that's fair. That's fair. We may not yeah. get every Democrat, but we'll probably get every Republican voting against us. Yeah. So the point is, is that. You know, you're, we're going to go through this for the next month. And then what happens when every one of those is every one of those bills is torpedoed, as as will happen. Right. Does that increase pressure on Manchin? And what are, what do Democrats do? I, I, I am fearful that Manchin will be in the same stubborn position he was before. And then what do you do? Right. And my and my answer to that is you start formulating every bill sort of around a lot. There's other things to do, too. But you start forming every formulating every bill around putting maximum pressure on Republicans voting, you know, things that will just you can hang around their necks in the midterms and and will also maximize the squeeze on Joe Manchin. So. If it turns out you can't get for the people through the voting rights legislation and you can't get uh, and maybe you can't get the Voting Rights Act either because it's you don't get, you can't get 10, 10 Republicans. Yeah. Right. So so why don't you package together? There are there are like there's polling on what are the most important, not most important, but most popular aspects of the For the People Act. And why don't you take the four most popular things um, one of them, which is, you know, eliminating gerrymandering, partisan gerrymandering, one of which is election security, one of them, which is, you know, getting dark money out of politics. But the, the things that pop, that that poll in the 70s and 80s, per 80 percentile, put them together with some of the most popular provisions of the Voting Rights Act and force Republicans and Joe Manchin to vote on that that again. Like force them to take a vote against something that 70 percent to 80 percent of the population, uh, you know, and and then at the same, you know, you can do that on infrastructure, too. If infrastructure, you know, if it turns out we can't get any sort of bipartisan deal, then, man, package up everything that is 65 plus percentile voting. That's a damn good bill because there's very good things that poll at. 60% 60% plus in both the American jobs plan and the American uh, family plan and put it together and force a vote on that. And at the same time, cancel student debt. He can do that alone. Nancy Pelosi should immediately move forward on a select committee to investigate January 6th. I mean, Democrats can have momentum on things, but right now we look stalled and weak. And I can't tell you how important I think canceling student loan debt will be. Do you know, last week he went to Tulsa and he, um, I'm dominating. You don't, I'm filibustering. You don't get to talk anymore. (laughs) No, go on. I'll interrupt if I need to, but I don't. (laughs) Last week, President Biden went to Tulsa and was sort of, you know, went to commemorate this massacre that happened there. And then, and then his press secretary was saying, Hey, we're having trouble with voting rights, but here's where we're moving forward on, you know, on, on uh, decreasing the wealth gap and, you know, uh, sort of racial equity initiatives and stuff like that. And things that were included in the American rescue plan, all true. And you know what the NAACP leader said, he said, okay, fine. But if you're not canceling student debt or student loan debt, 
then you can't even talk about any of this other stuff. It was that important because it's such an unfair and disproportionate burden on people of color and particularly young people of color. I don't understand why he just doesn't do it. And if there's some legal gray, which there might be some legal gray area with this, let it be litigated. Let Republicans fight in the courts to keep people from having. And if you, what, you're going to forget people's that and you're going to add it back on, you know, if the Supreme Court Republicans decide that no people should be indebted in perpetuity, uh, he should just do it. I don't understand the, the, the slow walking that part. So one of, I think one of the key, what Chuck Schumer is doing with this Votorama is sort of putting pressure on Joe Manchin to demonstrate that there are Republicans that they can negotiate with. It's like, oh, so we can have bipartisanship, then bring us some some Republicans. And today, uh, Lisa Murkowski, who's the most moderate Republican in the Senate, the most likely to cross over, announced that she was against, she wasn't even going to allow, she was going to filibuster the paycheck protection plan, the, the you know, gender equity in, in, in people's salaries. So if Lisa Murkowski wouldn't even allow that to be debated, are we really going to get any of these Republicans to cross over on any of this legislation? I have a hard time believing that. So I think part of this is showing mention that the Republican Party, just like with the 1-6 commission, you know, Manchin was like blowing away. He thought he was going to get votes on this thing, right? We barely got any. And that was core democracy at stake. It, it's to show that these, these Republicans are really not interested in in uh, in working with Democrats on anything. They don't want to give Biden any more victories, clearly. And they're going to keep dragging out this infrastructure stuff until Biden says enough. Or until Manchin, like, finally says, all right, I'll, 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 I'll let this be right. dealt with in reconciliation, which only requires 50 plus one, uh, 50 right. plus the uh, Harris tiebreaker. The other um, big piece, though, is there's a ticking bomb, and that's the debt limit. That's about to expire here in the next couple of months. I forget exa- the exact date, but it's coming up here. And so are there 10 Republicans that will vote to raise or maybe just even eliminate the whole you know, process of the debt limit, which basically says a country cannot spend more, cannot borrow more than this level, right? And of course we need to keep borrowing. It's just, it's, <laughs> we don't have a balanced budget. It's going to happen. It's been a political political football for the presidency. It doesn't matter who the president is for the last, you know, two decades. And the party, the minority party tries to gum it up and create trouble because really the only option is to shut down the government. And we know government shutdowns are not popular and they are always blamed on the president. So now you have a situation where you have Republicans looking at Joe Biden. He's sort of Teflon. He, they don't know how to deal with them. They'd rather attack Kamala Harris and other black women because that they know how to do. They don't know how to deal with Joe Biden. This could potentially be a great way to force Joe Biden to like, you know, suffer some real public blowback. If in the summer you got to shut down public, national parks and and services and, and that sort of thing. So this is going to be another test whether Joe Manchin's going to let Republicans control that process and block it and cause that kind of pain. Or if he'll finally say, you know what, maybe this filibuster thing is not such a good idea. That would be the best case scenario. I'm not particularly counting on it, but that's what... I'm, um, the reason I'm not counting on it, unfortunately... Is, be- is because he ended up the same place even after that January 6th commission vote, which was total egg on his face. You know, he he was like, oh, there would have, except for Mitch McConnell, there would have been, you know, 13, 14 Republicans. Okay, well, you didn't get him, Joe. You didn't get him. Because and of Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell. And Mitch McConnell <laughs> no. has said 100% of his focus is on killing Biden's agenda. So I, I don't know how he squares those things in terms of bipartisanship. It's it is infuriating. But I do think that there are still things that Democrats can do, even if we come out on the other side of June. And, you know, I think it requires a reformation a reformulation of strategy. Yeah. So, Carrie, I think it's time to bring our guest on and, and talk about sort of the main theme of today's show. Do you want to go ahead and introduce them? 
Yes, I? I would. Yeah. No, no, I'm I'm happy to do it. I'm happy to do it. So on today's show, and to help us make sense of what's happening with this wave of anti-trans, um, anti-LGBTQ legislation, but in particular, the anti-trans legislation, we have Shannon Minter, uh, who is the legal director of the National Center for Lesbian Rights. He served as lead counsel for same-sex couples in the landmark California marriage equality case, which held that same-sex couples had the fundamental right to marry. Yay. And Minter was also NCLR's uh, lead attorney in Christian Legal Society versus Martinez, a U.S. Supreme Court decision upholding student group policies that prohibit discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. And our other expert today who will lead us through is Vivian Topping, who serves as Director of Advocacy and Civil, Civic en- Engagement for the Equality Federation. We'll give her a chance to tell us what, what the Equality Federation does, but she, she works with state-based LGBTQ organizations to craft legislative and electoral campaigns that build political power and allow supporters to take action in their communities. Uh, Vivian was the field director for the historic win uh, and winning Yes on Three campaign in Massachusetts um, that preserved transgender protections in the state. And she previously led electoral and legislative advocacy uh, programs in Michigan. Yay, go Michigan. I'm a Michigander, by the way. I I grew up there. Yes, it's true. Um, and I graduated from University of Michigan, something our viewers know, because every once in a while I sneak in a go. Every episode, every episode. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, anyway, but she's she's led uh, legislative programs in uh, Michigan, Florida, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Texas and Illinois. So. Uh, some important battleground states that our our listeners have heard a lot about, too. In any case, thank you both for joining us. Yeah. Thank you all for having us on. Okay, great. (laughs) All right. So we're going to get into some of the personal, political, and legal aspects of this legislation. Vivian, I was hoping you would start off by just telling us a little bit about the Equality Federation and then also give us the top lines on where we are with this anti-trans legislation. Because I know we're more, we've got more than 100, 100 anti-trans bills introduced this, ses- this session, and it's historic. Apparently, I can't talk today. But anyway, please go ahead. <laughs> yeah, no, thank you all for having me on. Um, so the Equality Federation is an advocacy accelerator rooted in social justice that builds power for our network of state-based LGBTQ advocacy organizations. We were founded in 1997 by our member organizations like Equality Florida uh, to harness all of the state groups of collective knowledge and power. We track state legislative bills that impact LGBTQ people, and we try to help build the state-based movement for LGBTQ equality. Uh, So this session has been incredibly hard for LGBTQ people this year. You mentioned the number of anti-trans bills. Broader, we have over 300, we have exactly 337 anti-LGBTQ bills that have been introduced across the country. About half of those, 150 of them, specifically target trans people. In that list of, uh, in that group of bills that target transgender people, it's everything from athlete bans, of which there are 75 across the country that would ban transgender youth from participating in sports, about 40 bills that ban um, best practice gender-affirming care for transgender youth, and then a whole host of other bills that impact uh, whether or not we can update documents, access to public space, and we're even seeing, a couple, like in Tennessee, a couple of bathroom bills that have been introduced, that have actually been passed and enacted. This year, um, as of last week, 31 bills have been enacted This against LGBTQ people across the country. Um, about eight of those are athlete bans that target those transgender youth from participating in sports. And we have one healthcare ban that has actually been able to pass. There's been a few states here who've also had athlete bans that passed their legislatures, but then were vetoed by their governors. So we saw that happen in North Dakota and in Kansas. Um, and we Whoa. also have very- well, Kansas, okay, but North Dakota. Yeah, North Dakota, Republican governor who, who vetoed that bill. And then a Republican legislature that upheld the veto. Um, and so we've seen these kinds of attacks happening across the country all year. And we saw their origins kind of start back in 2020. Um, we knew that these things were coming. We saw a lot of them start getting introduced last year. 
But then because of COVID-19 and the pandemic, a lot of state legislatures shut down. And so the movement stalled. Last year, one bill was passed. Um, Idaho passed an athlete ban last year. That bill is currently um, in a lawsuit at the moment and um, is not actually in effect yet. But the other eight states that have all introduced bills this year, they are all in, they're all enacted in, in various states of implementation. And so we're seeing these kinds of really targeted attacks on not just trans people, but to be really clear, on transgender youth in their states. Um, and just a mere introduction of these bills harms transgender kids. Shannon, let me, let me ask you this. Let me pull you in. Why? <laughs> like, why are Republicans suddenly so obsessed with this kind of legislation? Is there, is there, is it just simple bigotry? Is there something deeper than that? Any idea why they're so motivated to do this? Yeah, I mean, I think it's a combination of things. Hey, I just want to say it's so great to be on here with Vivian. The Equality Federation is awesome. And there's, uh, I, lo- I think our movement benefits so much from elevating the voices and power and influence of the state-based groups because they're so much more in touch with what's happening on the ground. And uh, so thank you, Vivian, for everything you're doing. And Thank you, go Shannon. Equality- Yeah, go Equality Federation. Yeah, we why? <laughs> well, look, y'all, holy smokes. Yeah, I mean, this is... I was sitting here thinking, has anything like this ever happened before? I don't think so. Uh, I mean, there was the wave of anti-marriage equality laws. Those were bad. But most of those were not taking away rights that we had already achieved. Some of them were, but most of them were not. And um, we know how that, that story ended. But this this just has a new quality to it. I mean, this is like going after, you know, this is a pushback of of ground that we had gained for transgender people and transgender young people and just the the sheer ferocity of it and just the quantity of it is is really new. I mean, I think, I want to think about that more. Maybe there is some historical precedent. If there was, we should look at it, but like, why the hell is it happening? No, it's not just pure bias. I mean, definitely it is fueled in, in, uh, by bias, but it's opportunistic. I mean, the, this is like a seriously massively well-orchestrated, massively well-funded effort on the part of a whole bunch of different anti-LGBTQ groups. They know very well that there is an enormous information gap with the public that people do not understand. The people don't even know trans kids exist, much less know anything about them. And so they're taking advantage of that and, and like pulling, drawing on these really old tropes about LGBTQ people as predators, as threats to children. And I mean, it is it's like, can we just say wildly effective? I mean, they have hit like a sweet spot of public ignorance about transgender people, transgender young people in particular, about fears, about changes, social change. I mean, people, all, all these conservative commentators and groups are pinpointing transgender people as like the the incarnation the ultimate symbol of everything they fear and hate about current social changes and threats to traditional values in the traditional family i mean they've made transgender people be the emblem and scapegoat of so many different things and um that they fear and it's like really working really well let me ask this, Shannon. Do you think that legally these these bills end up holding up since that's, you know, a real area of expertise for you? You've seen how this stuff ends up, you know, challenges are being legal challenges are being filed. What do you th- what do you think ultimately happens to a lot of these bills? Well, I hope to goodness they get struck down. You know, they certainly should. Uh, so far, the track record on that is good. We are in a new moment in that, you know, one in every four federal judges uh, was appointed by President Trump. So we are the judiciary is different than it used to be. It is not as friendly or just fair an environment as it as it has been for us. And the current Supreme Court, of course, is packed with a hyper majority of Trump appointed very conservative judges, all that set. So I just want to be clear, people understand, it's not like litigation is going to be a magic solution to this problem. 
it will be an important part of fighting back against it. I do think we're going to try to bring carefully selected cases and, you know, and carefully selected places to the extent we can and try to build up as many victories as we can and uh, hope for the best. Uh, try to lay a strong foundation by the time one of these cases gets to the Supreme Court. But we shouldn't kid ourselves. Like we're, this is not going to be super easy. And litigation alone is, is not going to do the job here. I mean, we need massive community engagement and involvement to address this moment. So, Vivian, to that very point, I, two things have struck me. One is the so far. One is the idea that, no, we can't depend on the courts to bail us out. Two is the I, what you said earlier, that just introducing these bills is incredibly damaging to trans youth and allies, too. I, I mean, nobody likes to see somebody get bullied and, and abused the way Republicans are doing to, to, our, to our youth. You are sort of plugged into that state-level battle. Is it getting traction outside of the Fox News bubble? Is this something that actually people are starting to care about? Is it penetrating beyond, yeah. you know, QAnon? And Fox? Yeah, and and I want to be really clear. Like, we talked a little bit about like where is this coming from, right? This is a coordinated strategy. Like, they have explicitly said that out in public. Um, there was an interview in Politico, I believe, it was last year um, with Terry Schilling at the American Principles Project, who explicitly said, like, yeah, I'm using this as a wedge issue. So, like, this is not, like, when, like I think the, the point of Shannon saying, like, yes, like, we have, we are, we're, this is a long fight. This is the thing that they have chosen. They've been trying to find ways to use trans people as a, as a wedge. They lost in the bathroom part. That didn't work. This is working for them. And is this being sports or athlete bands? I think athlete bands, like the specific sports, and like just in general focusing on trans youth. Um, because here's the thing, like it all comes back to the same messaging of the bathroom bills. It all comes back to this idea of like safety and privacy and like children being attacked or assaulted in some way, shape, or form. That's not the truth when it comes to being trans and for trans kids, right? And so I just want to be really clear that they are relying on the same messaging and same framing, just packaged up slightly differently to be able to use this as their wedge issue for um, electoral work. Whether it's the athlete bans or medical care, where they're trying to use trans people as a wedge. To actually like, answer your question in terms of, like, is this penetrating? I mean, it is. It is at this point. Um, there, this has been something that keeps being brought up, not just in, like, state legislatures. It was brought up during the Federal Equality Act hearing in the House. It's been brought up by um, multiple folks kind of across the country um, as people are trying, as they are trying to um, go after different progressive legislators or anyone who may have supported trans youth. This be, it's being used there, and it's being it is something that we know is confusing for folks because, like Shannon said, a lot of folks maybe have not thought about this before this entire situation. Right? They may have like be okay generally with trans people and may understand it, but they just. Once they get asked this question, then they get confused because a lot of folks still don't understand what it means to transition. And I want to be really clear, like the impact on, tra on trans youth and trans people, I want to make sure that we really center that because this isn't just about like seeing people get attacked or whatever in the legislature. It is about your, your pure humanity. In Arkansas, the, one of the doctors at the gender clinic, um, when she was testifying, against the healthcare ban that was that was passed there. So a bill that bans gender affirming care for transgender for transgender youth said to them at the hearing that three children in her program had already been in the ER recently for suicide attempts. And that was before the bill even passed. And the Trevor Project also released information recently, a new, a new um, report that showed that I believe it was 42%. That's the number that's in my head, but I think I might be wrong. 42% of LGBTQ youth said that the current political climate and specifically the anti-trans bills negatively impact the mental health. And so we are seeing not just like an attack in general, but we are seeing a very specific attack on trans kids that is making it even harder to be a trans kid. Right. So, so... This is, okay, first of all, the classic combination of Republicans playing on fear and ignorance at the same time, right? The ignorance, the, the, the lack of understanding among people is making it much easier for them to push their message out, gin up fear, and pass these bills in a very effective and efficient manner. And at the same time, you know, this is obviously, as you say, effective in its cruelness 
to trans youth. Um, I do want to make a political distinction here. I'm unclear that they've that it's really worked as a wedge issue where you get swing voters to come over to the Republican side who might otherwise be voting for Biden or, you know, another Democrat. Okay, so I I I I would be happy to be corrected if that's wrong. But for instance, you mentioned Terry Schilling. I'm pretty sure that they were trying to execute that strategy in Kansas, if I remember that that Politico article. And they were going to use it. Am I wrong? Is that right, Vivian? No, you're not. You're not. I believe, I don't know if it's Kansas. I know about Kentucky and I know about Michigan. Um, So they did, they ran ads And they lost. Yeah, they they did. In other words, they were trying, I think it was, maybe I'm confusing Kansas and Kentucky and anyone who's living in those two states right now is hating me and that's fair. But anyway, I, I couldn't remember which case state it was. There you mm-hmm. go. It's, it's probably Kentucky, but they were going to try to use it to rep- to elect a Republican governor. And as we know, we have a Democratic governor yeah. of, of Kentucky right now. So I, I'm unclear that it's working as a wedge issue to win people over to the Republican side, yeah. which is sort of what the same sex marriage idea was, right? The same sex marriage bans supposedly were winning Republicans, I mean, sorry, Democrats over to the Republican side. I, I, I have a lot of problems with that theory, by the way, but nonetheless, people believe it. And that seems to be what Republicans are trying cr- to create here. The difference between now and 2004, 2006 is we're coming off a pandemic, there's, you know, serious pocketbook issues for people. And while that makes some people more vulnerable to fear, it's hard for me to imagine swing voters, especially in sort of suburban districts who want to get their kids back in school, want to get vaccines to work and whatever, being motivated and swung over to the Republican side by an attack on transgender youth, even if they're worried about women's sports. I don't know. Hypothetically. I would argue that it's not actually been tested. So it happened in Kentucky, right? And it happened in Michigan. The ad buys weren't very big. And frankly, like that, there hadn't been this huge, like six months of conversation of this happening in state legislatures. So we're now seeing a different environment that we're going into. It hasn't been effectively used yet, but it is part of what they talk about. And it lines up with the general kind of work to... Bring, bring back like a Christian right society. Like that's where they're, that's where they're moving. Like when we talk about this being coordinated, it's not just about trans people. It's about justice. It's about immigration. It's about all these pieces um, to bring us into this kind of far right Christian right society that they want us to be into and to explicitly be able to legislate transgender people out of public existence. And so it hasn't been used as a wedge issue successfully yet, but I would also argue that it's the conversation is very different this year compared to last year. That's fair. So I, I have two questions, and, and Karen, you can ask them one after the other, so I'm going to filibuster a little bit here, uh, the microphone. But uh, first of all, to Shannon, um, have you read any briefs yet, any legal briefs that are defending some of these laws? Have they been issued yet? And if you have, uh, or do you have any sense what kind of arguments they're making to justify this bigotry against youth? Yeah, of course. Yeah, there's been there's uh, the there's been a case already in Idaho. Idaho was the first state to pass one of these state bans. It was immediately challenged, and there was a briefing on both sides. And even though the judge in that case was very conservative, appointed by President Trump, uh, he was uh, he's smart and he was fair, and he listened to the evidence and came to the conclusion that the law should be enjoined. That there was not enough evidence to support it, and that banning all trans girls from playing school sports was just uh, sweeping way too broadly and that being transgender was not an accurate proxy for somebody's athletic ability. So it's actually a remarkably good decision. Yeah. I mean, the people on the other side are claiming that they are defending uh, girls and women's sports and that, uh, you know, they characterize trans girls as, um, I hate, I don't like to repeat their arguments as, uh, you know, quote unquote biologically male and say, hey, that's the whole premise of having separate sports for boys and girls is that there's physical differences between boys and girls. That's the entire rationale for gender segregated sports. And you're undermining that by allowing trans girls to compete on girls teams, all of which everything I just said, unfortunately, 
resonates with the common sense of virtually every person in this country. That's why, Carrie, I'm a little worried. I hope you're right. I hope you're right that these arguments are not going to succeed in pulling people away, you know, actually peeling away swing voters. But I don't think we should take that possibility too lightly because, uh, the, you know, they're, the, the folks using these arguments are able to. For, I mean, the reason I think one of the reasons we won the marriage equality battle is because our message is, hey, what, you know, you're not no one's being hurt if you let same sex couples marry. It doesn't hurt anyone. You know, the other side of the thing realized that, too. And they're trying to they've now, you know, pretty cleverly come up with this argument saying this does hurt people. This is hurting girls and women. It is getting so, tracked in some surprising quarters, I will say. It, it, it cracks me up that these are the same people that have fought against equality in judicial, uh, in, in collegiate athletics. Now it's only all for women Listen, athletics. Right? We, we say that, but we have to realize that some of the people embracing these arguments have a long history of being women's sports advocates. Okay. It's painful. Mm-hmm. It's terrible. I wish that was not the case. And yet that is also happening. And, and sorry, yeah. Carrie, I just want to follow up on one real – you say that the <laughs> judge look at the evidence, and the evidence didn't find any evidence of actual harm to women's athletics. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I think that's a very important point for people to know, that even a Trump judge came mm-hmm. to that conclusion. Yeah, I mean, just that if you look at the medical evidence – and just the empirical evidence of uh, experience on the ground of having inclusive policies, there's just absolute, there's just like literally not a scintilla of evidence that allowing trans girls to play on girls sports has had any detrimental impact on girls sports. And there's no evidence that being transgender, the transgender girls have any athletic advantage over um, other girls. So yeah, I mean, the facts are on our side, uh, but uh, facts alone yeah. are never enough to win politi- political battles. And I you know, I really think we need to do so much more. We do need, of course, to talk about the facts, yes. But mm-hmm. we, we, we need to be out there saying there is no conflict here. There's no harm to anyone in allowing trans kids to, to play and be treated equally. And we need to humanize trans people. I mean, I feel like too often – now, I'm not saying we're we're responsible for what's happening here. I don't want to mean to do that. But I do think we haven't helped ourselves by the way we often talk about transgender issues and people. People tend to be very abstract. They fall into very ideological positions, very politically polemical positions. It's as though we forgot everything we learned in the marriage equality movement, that we have to talk about shared values and talk in terms that people can understand. And a lot, there's a lot we don't we have not done that well. And just like in terms of like the power of this argument and like how this has impacted folks, in Florida, they passed one of these bans. That is the first anti-LGBTQ bill to pass in Florida if in 23 years. And this is the one. And to be clear, they killed it in committee and then they brought it back and put it on like a train bill to just add it to a bunch of other add a bunch of other amendments to something to make it so that it had to go. And then when that bill was signed. It wasn't referred to as like this omnibus bill. It was referred to as a Save Women's Sports Act. Like that's what it was. And so I think like no, the worst. I think we're still at the very beginning of a lot of this right now, and we're going to see much more of it play out over the next couple of years. Vivian, what are the things that people are missing about? these bills and the way they're written, because that's part of the ignorance, right? I read one thing about how, and I am not an expert on these bills by any means, but how, um, you know, you, in order to be assessed as to whether you were transgender or not, Mm -hmm. and, you know, could play in women's sports or girls sports, you know, you had to get some sort of medical assessment, but anyone who accused someone of that, right. And then they, it could be a cisgender woman, cisgender girl, you know, um, who, who was then subjected to having to prove that they weren't trans and had to go through a, a medical assessment. I mean, you know, these are things that people don't think about. Well, how do you prove someone is trans at that age? How do you, you know, what, what do you go through? So I, I think there's some ignorance that we could clear up. Um, and I wonder on, on, you know, things that people haven't thought of about these bills and why they're not such a great idea beyond the fact that they're incredibly cruel and unconscionable. Um, can you tell me a couple of those things from the from the meat of the bills? Yeah, yeah, I think there's a couple. So one, like, 
All the bills are slightly different in terms of how they enforce and what they do. There are a number of bills, though, that especially last year um, had in there a genital inspection, like a physical examination by someone, right? Or getting genetic data from someone or what that may look like. And I think for me, the question then to proponents of these bills is like, how do you see that working out? Like, please tell me what you see happening, right? Yeah. Because what it means is that anyone could accuse anyone else who may not fit within their perceived perception of what it means to be a woman. They could say to them, well, okay, I think that person is trans. And then that person who's being accused would have to be examined by someone, would have to, ha- or potentially have their genetic data t- t- tested or taken. Like, it just is, it doesn't actually make sense when you start actually thinking about the ways that it could be enforced, right? And so I think like there's there's that one piece. I think the other big thing to remember too is that these bills are explicitly a target on transgender women and particularly on Black transgender women. So when you think about um, wh- what the bills actually focus on, trans men are often there is nothing for trans men listed or about what about where trans men can participate. Or if there is, it specifically says, well, trans men can participate in men's sports. Like done, and it's because they are constantly going through like this this discussion about what hormones is someone taking what kind of body does someone have and it focuses so explicitly on transgender girls the reason i also specifically say on black transgender women is because this harkens back to just a constant critique of the womanhood of black women and when we look at the people who are constantly being lifted up there's a case in connecticut um, that was recently um Tossed, I believe tossed out, Shannon, correct me if I'm right, um, tossed out recently about um, inclusion and in, in, about tra- two trans girls who are participating in sports. Those are the two people that are constantly brought up. And there are constantly questions made about Andrea Earwood and Terry Miller and what they look like and what their womanhood looks like. And so I think for me, it's a couple things. It's like the disproportionate impact on transgender women and the fact that like what this would do is open up every single child in the state that participates in sports to potentially having to get a gender, having to have their genitals inspected. And, you know, I, I don't want to see, I have, I have a seven-year-old niece. I would not want my seven-year-old niece to, when she is maybe playing, trying to play high school sports, potentially get accused of being trans and then have to pretend to be, and then have to get her genitals inspected by some school employee. Like, who is that? Who's going to do that? How is that going to work? And so it's just, I think that when we look at these bills, what they actually are doing is they're creating just this constant attack on women and girls when they're saying that they're trying to protect women and girls. Yeah, no, it's it's unbelievable. And and I'm curious, and either of you, if you know the answer to this, has and this is all part of the the, the broader question, is this sort of it's getting out of that bubble? Is this actually getting traction in more mainstream circles? Have any of the collegiate organizations uh, of women athletics, any women professional leagues, has there been any discussion at all on these issues at that level where you would think that the there, you know if there was going to be an impact, that's the level where it might actually start to matter. There might actually be contracts at stake. You know, there's more. Is there anything at all at those levels? I'm not sure specifically, but what what I would say is that there are state like high school athletic associations and groups that have been already kind of trying to figure out how this works and how they handle it. And they have had policies for trans inclusion for years. Okay. There have been trans trans youth who have participated in high school, high school sports for years with no problem. And so for me, I think like, yes, there are some places that have policies. I'm not completely sure on what all, on who all has spoken out when it comes to athletic groups. Honestly, this is one of the worst places for me to be as a trans advocate because I know nothing about sports. And so <laughs> I'm not totally sure. But Shannon, I don't know if you have more there. You look like you're oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, we've been working on this issue for years before it blew up. Um, I mean, part of the difficulty here is that, yeah, almost every, um, well, a lot of the elite, like the, the uh, International Olympic Committee, uh, the NCAA, they've had policies in place for a very long time. The NCAA, I mean, NCLR worked with them to develop their policy back in 2011, and it was, you know, in place for a long time. It worked; it's been working really well. No one's paying any attention, but you know, all of a sudden now, this issue is, is blowing up. And, and, and to be clear, that policy was one of inclusion. 
Yeah, look, that's what I'm trying to get. It's, yes, it's inclusive, but when we're talking about, like, the NCAA is elite competition, and the Olympics are elite competition. There are uh, medical requirements. Like, under the NCAA rules, um, a trans uh, woman has to have a year of hormone therapy before competing. And I, I think this is a completely fair and reasonable rule for elite competition, Part of the challenge that we're having now is it makes no sense to treat like a middle schooler or even a high schooler like an yeah. Olympic athlete or an elite you know, athlete. Um, but this is a lot to unpack and explain for people who know nothing about any of these issues. So I just, you know, if anybody's out, whoever's out there listening, if there's one thing, you know, I think we can't stress enough is that no one, no one in the wider world outside of our little bubble knows the first thing about any of this. Even people within our community, the LGBT movement, even politically engaged people have a very glancing familiarity with these issues. To say that we have an information gap is a huge understatement. And yes, and again, we, do we need to fill in these information gaps? Yes, we do. But more than anything, we need to get back to what we know works which is appealing to people's, you know, sense of compassion and humanity. And we've got to do, you know, it's much more effective to just talk about trans kids as kids and transgender people as people than to undertake these, you know, to try to educate everyone about all the ins and outs of testosterone and hormone therapy and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. You know, in, in the marriage equality fight, it was, it was, you know, there you can have couples, and you can use those as sort of to, to spread that message that love is love. And is there does it make it more difficult that we're talking about kids and, well, and, because of privacy and, and the pressures and all those things, right? So it makes, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, there are children who are transgender kids who live in states where every year they go to their state capital to defend their rights. Yeah. Like they've like grown up just knowing that they that they do that. They, there are kids who, because their parents have spoken out, they've had to move. They've had to leave because they received death threats or people try to dox them online. It happens consistently. I mean, I think like that, that impact is also happening right now within Arkansas, where they have passed a medical care ban and where transgender kids and their families are trying to think about, okay, what do I do? Do I stay in Arkansas where maybe our family is, where our job is, where our life is, or do I have to try to move somewhere for my kid and do I move somewhere where maybe that another one of these bills is going to be introduced? Because what what's happening here is that these states are saying that athlete, that you can't that you have to be on certain types of hormones for athletics, but then they also introduce these medical care bans that attack these kids and say, but you can't access that care before a certain age. Mm-hmm. And so, like they're they're doing these things, or they're just explicitly trying to make a difficult system for trans kids. And I think like we all, there is a concern, at least that I have about. What does it look like for these kids who have spent years going to the Capitol and who are out there publicly forever as trans people, as trans kids? You know, like that means that every time that you look up that kid's name, like they're going to be found out. And that means that they get outed every single time. And like what is like the, the mental health impact of having to go to the Capitol, even if you decide not to go, but going and realizing that like your government is not on your side. And getting that that realization so young that there are people who are literally attacking you every single time. Right. So, but I mean, I think the thing is, so we have had courageous, amazing, like wonderful trans children who have spoken out and athletes who are trans, the people who have actually spoken out and shared their story. I think Chris Mosier is someone, is a trans athlete who has done a lot of really amazing work in kind of just spreading the word about these bills and like sharing his own story. And so I think, you know, just thinking back to what Shannon had said, you know, it's really about sharing our stories and making it clear that we're people and that this is something that like, will directly impact us and, and make trans kids' lives harder. Right. Let me sneak in one last question. I know we're running up against uh, a time barrier here, but, but let me just ask this. You know, you're, you're talking about telling stories and humanizing, and I think that's great. Also, I'd like to see some some political backlash. I'd like to see some corporate backlash. Have we seen, because with, as we know in North Carolina, when they did that anti-trans bathroom bill back then, that worked out horribly for the Republican party in, um, in North Carolina. It did not, I mean, 
the governor lost re-election in a year when Republicans did really well across basically nationwide in 2016. They lost over a trillion dollars in revenues by the Associated Press's uh, count. Um, so have we seen corporations jump on this at all? I would say that we haven't seen corporations jump as much as we need them to. They, there was um, an, a national open letter stating opposition to anti-trans attacks, but we haven't seen the kind of impact that we want to see. And there actually was a um, recent campaign that got released called Keep Your Pride. And the website is keepyourpride.org, calling out specific corporations that have donated to, L- to anti-LGBTQ politicians, while at the same time putting out all these like rainbow pride things. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, they saw that there were these like, specific five companies, AT&T, um, Andrews of Bush, Coca-Cola, General Motors, NBC Universal, that donated $324,250 to anti-LGBTQ politicians. And so in my mind, corporations are not doing enough at this point. We need more from those folks. We also need more from the progressive infrastructure. That's part of why I'm really happy to be on this be on this today, because we need more progressives to be calling this out and to be saying specifically, this is a problem. This is not okay. And to really understand that, like, we don't necessarily always get every single Democrat on our side. I think, Carrie, you were talking about Joe Manchin earlier. In Texas, the athlete ban in Texas that fortunately did not pass, at least during this session, a Democrat is the one who moved it forward. And he moved it forward because he was mad about his own bill that got killed. And so he Uh, used trans kids as a political pawn. I was just going to say, I mean, what I hear from people who work with corporations is they want to participate and step up and help. They're really afraid. They don't understand this area. They don't understand the issues. And I think that's holding back a lot of allies too. So we've got to make it easier for people to support us on this and just make, you know, uh, make this simpler for people and make sure that, I mean, you know, part of what's happened here is that people are afraid to use the wrong word. They're going to get pounced on by the trans movement. We, we're in some ways we've been our own worst enemy. We really need to correct that immediately because as Vivian is so eloquently described, it is trans kids and their families are being crushed and devastated. So we need to do some soul searching about that and just go all out to to get these corporations on board, get more allies on board, get more female athletes to speak out in support of these kids. I mean, that's we're really we're kind of hampering our own our own success in that way. Any, anyone who's listening right now, if they work for a company that's wondering about what they can do on this, can they contact either one of your organizations and get guidance yeah. on that? Definitely. hundred percent. Okay, so that's the National Center for Lesbian Rights, and that's the Equality Federation. And Vivian, do you want to just leave off, too, with anything else other people can do? Yeah, and so I think for me, it's one, give your money to organizations that are doing this, and specifically to the local organizations. We have 42 member organizations across the country that are the folks who are on the ground doing this work. You can find your member organization in your state at equalityfederation.org and then just slash members. You'll be able to find every single LGBTQ org. Donate your time, donate your talent, and donate your, your treasure towards those, LGBT, towards those organizations because they need the work. One of the biggest other pieces of this is that trans-led organizations do not get the same amount of funding that other organizations do. So roughly for every dollar that a foundation gives out, trans folks get maybe four, get maybe four cents or trans-led organizations get maybe four cents from that from, from those foundations. And so we need your time, we need your talent, and we need your treasure to be able to support those organizations and support the Equality Federation. I mean, the work that you give to the Equality Federation goes directly into state legislative work. This year, we ran a paid call program that was able to get a little over a thousand, like, we were able to get thousands of calls actually into state legislators attacking that were introducing these bills, telling them to stop. And so donating to the Equality Federation, donating to your local LGBTQ organization. And, and make those make those donations recurring. I, I, can, yeah. I always stress this, the Please. importance of making them <laughs> recurring. Uh, Shannon, do you want to add anything about, about the uh, National Center for Lesbian Rights? Oh, well, yeah, we'd love your support. You know, this is one of our, one of our longtime issue areas, and we are fully engaged in, in defending these trans kids. We have our Transgender Youth Project, and as I said, we've been working on these sports issues forever. We represented Jazz Jennings before she was famous, when she was a little kid trying to play soccer. 
uh, and all that. But I would really echo what Vivian said is it also really look to the grassroots groups. And there's so many uh, the the families and parents of trans kids are our very best spokespeople on this. And there's all these new parent-led groups that are springing up all across the country that I think are some of the most effective advocates I've ever seen in my mm-hmm. whole life. And uh, having them supported and, you know, get c- corporate, you know, we can really use help from the business world to help elevate some of these new faces and um, that people haven't seen before, like the families of trans kids. How powerful would that be to see that, you know, in a, in a kind of national venue? So, yeah, just leave it with that. So Vivian Topping, she's the Director of Advocacy and Civic Engagement at the Equality Federation. And Shannon Minter, Legal Director of the National Center for Lesbian Rights. Thank you so much for joining us. This has been an incredibly uh, educational um, experience for me personally, and I'm sure for our listeners as well. Thank you. Carrie, that's all the time we have. So I think we used it well. I feel good about it. We, yeah, no, I, yeah, not, a, not a second was wasted, was it? Thanks to our guests, obviously, uh, Vivian and Shannon. Thank you, Walter Einenkel, for producing the show. And thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, be sure to subscribe and give us a rating wherever you get your podcasts. You can always talk to us at dailycoast.com or on Twitter at dailycoast. Thank you so much. See you next week. Thank you for listening. If you're enjoying the show, give us a rating wherever you get your podcast. You can always talk to us at dailycoast.com or on Twitter at dailycoast. See you next week.